Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, I want to start off our time this morning um, asking you to just think through this for a second. Think through the stressors, challenges, issues that you're facing in your life right now. And ask yourself, what is it uh, in your life right now that you obviously must do, but you obviously can't do it? Like there's something some barrier in your life that's keeping you from the thing that you know you need to accomplish or achieve or acquire. What is it in your life that you obviously must do that you obviously can't do? I had a a guy stop me last night after the sermon and uh, he came to me and he said, you know, at first when you said that, I thought, well, there's, there's really nothing. He's like, but then when I really played it through, he's like, it was hard for me to limit it to just one. There are things in our life that we know we need to accomplish or deal with but often, isn't it true? Haven't you experienced this? That often it's that, it's that destiny that we know we need to get to that seems to be surrounded by the biggest barriers. Like there's the biggest problems keeping us out of it. And maybe it's a, a relational thing. There's a relationship thing that you know you need to accomplish, but there's just kind of walls in the way of that keeping you out. Or maybe it's something that's you know financial. Maybe it's a, a personal growth, personal development kind of thing. When I think about those barriers around uh, my destiny, a lot of times the things I think about are those like personal growth things. So I struggle with anxiety. You hear my dad talk about that, but I also uh, deal with uh, anxiety. And as both a pastor and a psychology professor, I know there's a biochemical component of that, and I, I take that very seriously. But there's also a cognitive part of that that I need to be careful about how I think, and I need to be careful about how I approach certain things and and the way that I allow myself to draw conclusions. And I know that. I know something I need to work on. And yet sometimes I feel that I have big barriers uh, up around my ability to begin to think in new ways and to process things in new ways. So I'm just asking you to start off our time by thinking about what is it in your world that you know you need to do, but you obviously feel like you know you can't do it. Once you have that locked and loaded, you're ready for the talk today because we're going to talk about this point at which the Israelites in the Old Testament uh, were facing something that they clearly needed to do, but anybody looking at the situation would have said, yeah, you're probably not going to be able to pull that off. Uh, If you haven't been with us over the last couple weeks, we're talking about the Israelites being liberated from Egypt. So God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, a very bad situation they were in there, brings them out of Egypt and moves them toward what is called the promised land. And this is uh, a land that God has promised them that is everything that Egypt wasn't, all of the bad things that Egypt was. The promised land is the opposite of that. They're going to experience freedom. They're going to experience prosperity. Lots of things that they didn't even know, they didn't have a context for because of what life in Egypt had been like. So God is taking them from this old place to this new place. And as you probably recall from one of the previous messages, it really just should have taken them weeks to get from Egypt to the promised land. But instead of weeks, it took them decades. And I don't know if that strikes you the way it strikes me. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, I know I need to get there, and technically I should be able to get there, and yet I'm stuck not getting there, and it's taking too long, and everything I'm trying isn't working. Now, one of the main reasons why it took decades instead of weeks, there's a particular reason in this case. 
in this case, we have the first generation of Israelites, the ones that, got, uh, that came out of Egypt. They had a particular problem, which is why they didn't end up getting to go into the promised land, and that was their attitude. They had an attitude that was compatible with Egypt, but their attitude was not compatible with the place that God was trying to take them. Does that make sense? Their their attitude never left Egypt. They left Egypt, but their attitude was still in Egypt. So unfortunately, God could not take them from the old place to the new place because the new place would have required a new attitude, which they didn't seem to be capable of getting. See, they didn't have an attitude of gratitude. To have God pull you out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and take you to a new place, there ought to have been a spirit of gratitude. But instead of an attitude of gratitude, they had an attitude of gripitude. (laughs) And they consistently griped about everything that seemed to not be going right. Every barrier they hit was an opportunity for them to gripe. Instead of grateful, they were gripeful. I wonder if you know somebody in your life that should be grateful, but they're gripeful. And because they're gripeful, they'll never go to the new place because their attitude is stuck in the old place. That's what we're talking about with that first generation. Unfortunately, because of their attitude, they ended up wandering around the desert, never getting to go into their full destiny until they died off. And it was their children who learned the lesson who were able to go into the promised land. Now listen, if you are in this room and you're a young person, you need to hear me. And those of us who would no longer consider ourselves young people, we need to be sure that we are, we are gifting this message to the next generation. And that message is, please get what our generation didn't get. Please get what our generation didn't get, which is that if God wants to take us to a new place, we're gonna have to get a new attitude. And we reached this point. Last week, we talked about putting your toes in the water, and we are talking about crossing the Jordan. This week, we're talking about what happens when the Israelites get to the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho was a challenge specifically because it was the original walled city. Archaeologists call it that. It was the original walled city in the sense that this was sort of something that they started. Other cities weren't really fortified this way. They sort of started it. So they put up walls to protect their city. Then they would get attacked. And then they would rebuild the walls. And they would get attacked. And they would rebuild the walls. And they would get attacked. And they would rebuild the walls. By the time the Israelites show up, these walls have been fortified and fortified and fortified. Jericho's tried all different kinds of materials. At this point, they have built brick walls, thick brick walls around their city. The strongest kind of fortification that ancient architecture would have allowed. You have to understand the Israelites, they've never dealt with walls. They have battled other people groups, but they've never dealt with walls before. I wonder who I'm talking to in the room that when I asked you, what is it that you obviously must do that you obviously can't do? If you were to tell me about it, you would say, one of the reasons why I obviously can't do this is because I'm up against something new. This thing that I'm up against, I haven't dealt with before. I haven't fought it before. I haven't conquered it before. And it scares me because I don't know what to do with it. It blows my circuits because this is completely out of the range of what I'm used to dealing with. Well, that's where the Israelites were. They weren't used to dealing with cities surrounded by big, thick brick walls. Well, this is where we pick up the story. Joshua chapter six, verse one. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. Now this is not my message, but I need to stop here for a second and just ask you to think about the comedy of this. That the Israelites are afraid of the people that are inside the city of Jericho. But the reason that the city of Jericho is shut up is because the people in Jericho are afraid of the Israelites. 
I've never seen a generation of Christians that seems so scared of the world around them that is not a big fan of Christianity or a big fan of God. And on the, on, on the surface, I get that because it, it's difficult to know how to live in a culture that is becoming more and more anti-God. But can I tell you, we have no reason to be afraid though. Like that's not the attitude that we, we need to be very cautious not to adopt a posture of fear. Now I'll grant you that there are plenty of human beings that are not clear on how powerful God is. But can we just remind ourselves that our enemy isn't people anyway? Can we just remind ourselves that our enemy isn't people anyway? The Bible says that the enemy that we're fighting is a spiritual enemy in the spiritual realms. There is a spiritual battle going on. And I'm here to tell you that in the spiritual realms, the enemy of God is knock need in terror of the God that we serve. They had the place shut up because they were scared of the Israelites. So nobody was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I've given you all of Jericho, its kings and its strong warriors. Well, if I'm Joshua, I'm saying, well, that is good news because I was wondering. <laughs> I mean, they got these walls and we've never dealt with walls before. Now, here's the thing, too. I was reading a, a commentator who, who had taken the work of a person who studied ancient culture and said, now, there were five ways of dealing with walls in the ancient world. If, so if you were trying to take a city and the city had walls around it, there were five ways of dealing with it. And Joshua would have known these five ways. Here they are. First thing you could do is climb over the wall. Now, climbing over the wall, what you would do is you would have some ladders built that were as high as the wall, and you would send some of your best warriors over the ladders. They would go over the wall. And the, the reason they would do this is because regular walls, normal walls, not brick walls, would be strong on the outside, but they would be weak on the inside. So what you would do is you would send some of your warriors over, then they would kick out the walls, and then your army could come in. That would work. The problem is that Jericho had big, thick brick walls. They were not weak on the inside. So you, if you sent your people over the top, they would just be picked off like that. You'd never get the rest of your army in. So that doesn't work. Tunneling under the walls doesn't work either for the same reason that you're gonna get just a few people underneath the walls. And if you get a few people underneath, they're just gonna be really easy for the other people to just pick them off. And beyond that, this was not the kind of soil you could tunnel into. So there were two problems with that. Third thing is you could punch a hole in the wall, but you can't punch a hole in a fortified brick. I mean, do you get my, my point? I mean, it's kind of a theme here. These walls were extra strong, extra difficult to deal with. So you can't punch a hole through them. Fourth strategy is to starve the people inside. You just lay siege to the city, wait all around the outside of the city until the people on the inside run out of food and then they starve. Only problem is the city of Jericho was built on particularly fertile land and so they had crops on the inside of the city. So they were growing crops on the inside of the city so you were not gonna starve them out. Didn't matter how long you waited outside the city. And the other thing is you could try to trick people. Remember the story of the Trojan horse? You could try to trick someone to get inside the city. Only problem is, as we just read, they aren't letting anybody in and they aren't letting anybody out. This is what I want you to get. None of the normal ways were gonna work. And I think if you're Joshua, you've gotta, you've gotta accept that. You've gotta embrace that. None of the normal ways. You can go through the list, all five things. Can't climb over it, can't tunnel under it, can't punch a hole through it, we can't starve them, and we can't trick them. None of the things that normally work are gonna work here. And I don't know who I'm talking to who's in the room who would say, Jonathan, when you ask me what is it that I obviously must do that I obviously can't do, the reason that I obviously can't do it is because none of the normal things that people do to deal with this are gonna work for me. I mean, some of you Googled 
You got on Google to find out how you're supposed to deal with this. And none of the ways that Google told you you're supposed to deal with it will work for you. Interestingly enough, when God gives Joshua instructions, they are not on the list of the five normal things. And I would tell you that when God gives you instructions for how to deal with what you're dealing with, it will not be on the list of the normal things. God will not give you instructions that match other people's instructions. His instructions, can I just say the W word? His instructions will be weird. And God's instructions were weird. Joshua 6, 1, you and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you're to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. If I'm Joshua, I'm saying, now wait, I need you to run that for me again. And we're going to walk around, and we're going to come back the next day, and we're going to walk around, and we're going to come back the next We're going to do that a bunch of times. Then we're going to walk around on the seventh day, we're going to walk around a bunch of times, and then we're going to make a lot of noise. It sounds to me like what you're asking us to do is make ourselves just like conspicuous sitting ducks is really what it sounds to me like you're asking us to do. And yet... What I want you to know is the main difference, in my opinion, could be wrong, but I think the main difference between the first generation that would never get to the promised land and the second generation that did get to the promised land is that the first generation, if God had given those instructions to the first generation, they never would have done it. They never would have done it. They had, a, they had an attitude of gripitude, and they would have heard walking around the city, they're going to, what kind of ridiculous craziness is this? They would have, you know, they gave Moses such a hard time all the time. Why do we got to do it this way? Why has it got to be this way? This was a different generation. And I really believe that this generation is saying, if God asks us to skip and do cartwheels around the city for six days, we'll skip and do cartwheels around the city. If God asks us to stand on our head for 24 hours, we'll stand on our head for 24 hours. It really doesn't matter. Whatever God says for us to do, we're going to do it. And we need a generation of people who says, whatever it is that God asks us to do, We'll do that. Not because it makes sense to us. Not because it fits into the normal way. But because God has said to do it. And when God says to do it, then we do it. So the people did. They walked around the city. They did it once a day for six days. Seventh day, they walk around seven times. And when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. Now, here's what's interesting. Archaeologists tell us that the evidence supports the story. The last 150 years, there have been three different major digs on the site. One thing they found immediately in the first dig was that the walls of the city of Jericho did collapse on themselves. Not only did they collapse on themselves, they collapsed outside, creating, and this is in the words of the researcher, creating a ramp through which attackers could walk straight into the city. Now, isn't that crazy? We have that account in the scripture, but the archaeologist says it's very clear that's exactly what happened. Beyond all that, the Bible tells us that the Israelites burned down the city of Jericho, and the archaeologist said, yep, city was burned down. 
Then the archaeologist said, here's the weird thing. We found all kinds of artifacts, and we don't usually find those in this kind of situation, like personal artifacts, things that would have been belongings of the people that lived there. And the reason they aren't usually there is because when a people group attacks another people group, they usually plunder them. But in this case, God told the Israelites, don't take their stuff. So it actually fits that the archaeologists find all this stuff because the Israelites didn't take the stuff. So this really happened. I mean, this is absolutely true. And I think there's gotta be a moment where we say, God, what do you want us to learn from this? When we're going up against that moment when there's a barrier, there's walls around our destiny, what do you want us to learn? And that's what we're gonna spend the rest of our time together this morning on. It's important to know there's a difference between I obviously can't do this and I obviously can't do this the normal way. See, some of us, we need to be able to tell the story someday that I didn't do this the normal way, I did it God's way. And God's way was weird, but I did it God's way. Because God was the one who was gonna work out the barriers. Here's the thing that I want you to remember. The Israelites did not get to tear down the walls. Do you realize that? I mean, that's something we need to remind ourselves. In this story, God did not allow the Israelites to tear down the walls. Why? Because that was a God-sized job. Perhaps the reason why you obviously can't do the thing that you obviously must do is because the thing that you obviously can't do is a God-sized job. And so we have to say, God, you're gonna have to be the one to take down the barrier. I'm not gonna be able to do it, but I will do what you ask me to do in the process of taking down the barrier. I hope you get multiple things out of this message, but if you only get the next thing that I'm getting ready to tell you, if that's the only thing you get, it will have been worth it, and I hope you have something on which you can write this down, because this is true, and it will be true for the rest of your life, and this is the difference between the first generation and the second generation in this story, and that is that if you expect God to work how you work, you will never go to work for God, and life won't work for you. If you expect God to work how you work, you will never go to work for God and life won't work for you. See, the thing about it is, the reason the first generation was stuck in the wilderness for all those years is because whenever God put an initiative in action, they would not cooperate unless God's initiative made sense with their instincts, unless what I think is the right thing to do matches what God tells me to do. But can I just tell you that most of the time what God tells you to do will not seem like the right thing to do at the time. And so then we say, well, I, I, just, I can't be a part of that. If that's how God does things, I can't be a part of that. We live in a culture who has created so many versions of God that our culture is lost on what true faith is. We have created a, a culture of idolatry. There, everybody has their own little version of God that they can tuck in their pocket and say, this is my God that I trot out, and this is my faith. This is my version of God, but God is not small enough to fit in your pocket. God rules the universe. He is who he is, and his instructions are what they are. If you're willing to embrace God's way of doing things, though, you're going to have to accept. There are, there are certain realities you're going to have to accept. And the first one is this. The first reality you're going to have to accept is there will always be a disparity between my instincts and God's instructions. There'll be a disparity between my instincts and God's instructions. What feels right to me and what is right to God are going to be two different things. I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple examples. Matthew 5, verse 44, and this has to do with relationships. Jesus teaching here. Jesus says, I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How are we doing with that? Is that what instinctively comes up for you? Because it isn't instinctively what comes up for me. 
four-way stops. <laughs> what is it about us in the city of Wichita that we, count, we can't count to one, two, three, four? And I sit there and people go at the four-way stop when they're not supposed to be going at the four-way stop. And I pray for them, but not the kind of prayer here that the Bible is talking about. Not, not what this is talking about. God's instructions, my instincts, they're not the same. For instance, you know, talking about our, our finances maybe. Don't store up treasure here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them. By the way, this is Jesus talking. Where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. This is about God saying that his instructions are to pay attention to the kingdom and, and to let this world be a secondary concern. And see, the thing is, I used to think I was really good with this verse because I'm not really good at heaping together a big savings account. I've never been really good at saving a whole lot. So I, I've never had some huge savings account to my name. So I've always thought about it in terms of money. But sometimes God taps you on the shoulder and says, I don't think you're reading this right. And that's what happened to me because it was as though God said, you may not have a huge savings account, but you are pretty good at accumulating stuff. And God has reminded me multiple times someday when they put my body in a box and they put that box in one of those weird looking station wagons and it goes to the cemetery, there won't be a U-Haul behind it because I won't be taking my stuff with me. But you know what I will take with me into the next life? I will be taking with me into the next life everything I did for the kingdom of God. That I can't lose. Matthew 6, 31. So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring own, its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. As a person who struggles with anxiety, this is an area where following God's instructions is very different than my instincts. My instincts are to borrow trouble from tomorrow as much as I can manage to borrow. I'm trying to play everything out into the future. What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? I would be a great insurance assessor trying to figure out what is the risk, you know? God is saying, you realize you have enough on your plate for today. I didn't talk about this in the last few services, but it reminds me about when a person goes and works out at the gym. Not me, as you can tell, but when a person goes and works out at the gym, I can lift easily 5,000 pounds over several days and several reps. Okay, a lot of reps, a lot, lot of reps. But if I go try to lift 5,000 pounds at one time, I will injure myself. What is God saying about today's trouble is enough for today? He's saying, don't try to lift it all at once. You have a lifetime of stress ahead of you. Take it one day at a time. Take it one day at a time. Now, that doesn't mean live like there's no tomorrow. That's not what Jesus is saying. I'm not going to go out and charge $100,000 on a credit card and say, God said today's trouble is enough for today, you know. Um, no, what God is saying is live wisely today. Live wisely today. And those things tomorrow that you can't control, let God handle those. Let God handle those. Now, why is it so important that I lean into my, to God's instructions and not my instincts? It's because my instincts are based on my information and God's instructions are based on his information. And his information is better than my information. 
I was in Atlanta some time ago. I was on a, a trip to some conference. I don't remember what it was. And I, was, I had the GPS on to navigate me around Atlanta, which is good because I'm easily lost. I can get lost in West Wichita. I, just, I'm, I have no sense of direction. And uh, so I'm in Atlanta, I'm following the GPS and it's late and I'm tired and I just wanna get to the hotel and I know I'm staying at the Marriott and I, I pulled up to this intersection and I see the red glow of the Marriott sign right over to the left. And I realized that if I get on this little service road and go to the left, I could just go straight into the, the hotel parking lot. But the GPS is, is telling me to go right. And when I look right, I realize I would be getting onto a highway. And you ever look on a highway and see the flicker of about a thousand brake lights and you're like, I'm gonna be stuck there for like an hour if I get on that highway. And I thought, how ridiculous, stupid machine. I'm not gonna turn right and get in that. I'm just gonna go left and go to the hotel because that's where I'm headed anyway. So I go left, I'm headed to the hotel. The whole time the GPS is screaming at me, make a U-turn, turn around, blah, blah, blah. I get to the hotel, I get my stuff out of the trunk. I, I, you know, I walk into the hotel, stand in this long line, wait until I get to the front of the desk. And I get there to check in, and the person at the front of the desk is kind enough to let me know that Atlanta is actually big enough to have more than one Marriott. <laughs> and I was at the wrong one. See, the thing about it is, I had a limited perspective, and based off my limited perspective, the right path seemed simple. Are you with me? Based off my limited perspective, the right path seemed simple, but the understanding that the GPS had was better than my understanding, and it recognized that there might be more complexity to this than what I thought. And if I had just followed the instructions there, I would have been on the right path. See, the thing is, one of the reasons why people struggle to follow God is because to them it seems so complex when doing what their instincts tell them to do is so simple. But the simplicity comes from a limited perspective. And once we realize that our God has an unlimited perspective, then we embrace the complexity of his instructions. The good news out of all of this, and I... I, I come at this from just sort of like thinking through every story I could think through in the Bible and see whether or not this appears to be true to you. But I really believe the scripture bears this out that God will never bring you to a destiny without giving you directions. God will never bring you to that destiny with a barrier around it without telling you how he expects you to deal with the barrier. So the first thing is there's gonna be a disparity between my instincts and God's instructions. That's just something I have to normalize. The second thing is this, there will be a season of walking faith before the walls fall. There'll be a season of walking faith. It would have been much easier, I think, for the Israelites if God had said, get out there, walk around the city, and the walls are gonna fall. But instead, God said, get out there, walk around the city, get up the next day, walk around the city, get up the next day, walk around the city, get up the next day, walk around the city. And over and over again, walk around the city, walk around the city, walk around the city. Meanwhile, the walls look just as strong as they looked the first day. That's how life works. God does not ask us to enter into a transaction with him where we do something once and he gives us a payoff. God has invited us into a faith relationship with him where we walk in his instructions and at the right time the walls come down. And sometimes walking in his instructions mean I do the hard thing today and then tomorrow I wake up and do a difficult thing the next day and then I wake up and do a hard thing the next day and then I wake up and do a hard thing the next day and a hard thing the next day and I keep noticing that the walls don't seem to be falling. I, I don't, it's not happening for me yet. But God is saying, are you trusting me enough to walk in my instructions until the moment is right? When I, when I first started counseling couples, I used to give them homework. I don't know why I don't do it anymore. I just maybe got 
you know, to the point where I just said, this isn't working. But I did give homework for a while. And um, when I did, I would, I would have a couple come back and they would say, well, we tried it for the first day and nothing got better. So we just, pff, we're done with it. And I, I have to be compassionate about that because how many times have I read a scripture or read a devotional and go, oh, this is what God wants me to do. And I try it for a day and it, nothing seems to change and then I'm done with it. See, I have a pop machine view of justice. When I go to a pop machine and I put my coins in, or now, whatever, I put your $20 bill in and press the, <laughs> press the button, I expect it to vend my soda. Have you ever gone to a machine, you put your money and you press the button and it doesn't vend your soda? How absolutely crazy making is that? You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. And so as a, as a firstborn, I have an elevated sense of justice. I have other firstborns in the room. We like, we... You were like, hey, when, when I was born, my parents uh, were really strict. And then, you know, I don't know what happened after that. But we have that elevated sense of justice, right? And we're like, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I should get what I'm supposed to get. If I walk around the city once, I did what I was supposed to do. Why don't I get what I'm supposed to get? But the thing is, God hasn't asked you to do a walk. He's asked you to do a marathon. He's asked you to walk in it today, walk in it tomorrow, walk in it the next day, walk in it the next day, walk in it the next day. And actually, not so the walls will fall, so that he will know that you are trusting him, so that when the walls do fall, it will be clear who did it. Who did it. I, I, I do need to be clear about something, though, because sometimes people use this idea of the walking faith before the walls fall as a way to spiritually abuse people. Because sometimes people use faith as an excuse to get what they want out of other people. I was uh, getting ready to come home from a trip that I was on the last several days this week, and it was early in the morning, and uh, I, I was seeing a televangelist come out. I can't, remember, I can't remember whether it was the hotel or the airport or something, but I was in a public space and they, there was a televangelist on the TV and I was seeing the little subtitles scroll across. And the evangelist was in the process of talking about all the things God wants you to have. And apparently God especially wants you to have them if you send him money. Um, but God wants you to have a big house and God wants you to have a big bank account. I thought it was very interesting that he named the type of car. God wants you to have this specific kind of car and it's a German luxury car that he mentioned and as a person who used to be a mechanic, I'm like, I'm not sure God wants you to have that car. God actually might want you to have a car with a decent electrical system. I don't know, I'm just saying. Um, uh, God never promised you a fancy car. God never promised you a fancy house. God never promised you a huge bank account. God never promised you you wouldn't go through a divorce. God never promised you you wouldn't lose a loved one. God never promised you you won't have pain. God never promised you you won't have cancer. God never promised that he would heal you from every sickness that you ever had. And if somebody says that he will, that person is not thinking straight because if somebody says they know how to pray the perfect prayer to heal somebody, then I would really welcome them to St. Francis Hospital or over to Wesley Hospital today. Let's just fix that. But let me tell you, that's not the way the world works. We live in a broken world world where bad things happen. So it's very important that we understand that walking faith is not about believing God will do what he has not promised, but it is about being certain that he will do what he has promised. I love Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 says, in all things, God works for the good uh, of those who are called according to his purpose. Now, by the way, it's very important to understand that God does not cause the terrible things that happen in our life. We live in a broken world, and so sin is actually not my sin, but collectively, sin. So if I lose somebody that's dear to me, it's because I live in a broken world that sin has created this kind of terrible thing that I have to go through, illness, goodbyes, 
um, you know, evil in the world. However, what, what Romans 8.28 says is that even with the broken shards and broken pieces of, of the world that we live in, that sin has caused all of this brokenness, God can then take those little pieces and turn it into a mosaic that is beautiful and special and unique and something that we can look at and say, when I first saw it, it was broken and it was ugly, but now I look at it and I see that God is doing something amazing through it and I can see the story because God redeems brokenness. Walking faith says, I'm not, it's not that I'm holding God accountable to do something he never promised me that he would do, but what I am saying is that I am living in the reality that he will do what he has promised to do. So there's gonna be a disconnect between my instincts and God's information. There's gonna be a season of walking faith before the walls fall. There's gonna be a season of discomfort before the season of destiny. What's that phrase that people say? I don't want the labor pains, I just want what... Just want the baby. Guys should never say that. We don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> but we live in a culture where we want the delivery without the discomfort. Hello? We want the delivery without the discomfort. We want things to show up on our doorstep, but we don't want to have to go through the difficulty that gets us there. And one of the greatest gifts that we could give the next generation is to help them understand that it is the way life works that there is a season of discomfort before there is a season of destiny. There is the labor before the baby. There is the years of hard study before the diploma. There are the years of difficulty and conflict and communication skills development before the 50th wedding anniversary party. There are the miles before the milestones. There is a season of discomfort before the season of destiny to walk around the city of Jericho we're talking, as I said, we're talking sitting ducks. This is not where you wanna be if you're the Israelites. You don't wanna be walking around the city of Jericho. That's an uncomfortable place to be. And yet that is where God called them to be in that moment. I'm talking to somebody in this room that you're in an uncomfortable place right now, but you know that this is where God has called you to be in this moment because you are living your season of discomfort. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know what? I think God is calling me to take a step outside my comfort zone. Maybe God is calling me to take a few steps outside my comfort zone. Can I tell you, perhaps that's true, but usually God will do more than that. God will not just ask you to take a step outside your comfort zone. Like the children of Israel, God will call you to do laps around your discomfort zone. Often God will want to know if you trust him enough to leave your footprints that become a rut in a path around the zone of your discomfort. I'm talking to somebody in this room that you go into that chemo room and they put a needle in your arm and it is not what you would ever want for yourself and you are doing laps around the zone of your discomfort. I'm talking to somebody who's grieving a loss and you expected you'd be over it by now. You expected that you'd be able to just move on by now, but you still weep and you still have moments of just emotional flooding and you don't know what to do. It's just like, how do I let this person go? I love them so much and you are doing laps around the zone of your discomfort. And in those moments we say, what am I doing wrong? You're not doing anything wrong. You're in a season of discomfort before the season of destiny. You're not doing anything wrong. You were doing what God has called you to do. Hold on, you're nearly there. See, this is what the first generation didn't understand. If your destiny is surrounded by a barrier and you get closer to your destiny, what do you also get closer to? barrier. That's what they didn't get. 
If my destiny is surrounded by a barrier, the moment that I will become most confronted with that barrier, the moment the barrier becomes most in focus, most in my face, is the moment when I'm closest to my destiny. So we've said there's gonna be a disparity between my instincts and God's instructions. There's gonna be a season of walking faith before the walls fall. There's gonna be a season of discomfort before the season of destiny. But if you can hold on to those things and if you can accept those things and if you can digest those things, I'm here to tell you that there will be a moment when a God intervention is the only explanation. See, the thing about it is God wanted it to be clear that the walls of Jericho falling were his agenda and his doing. See, you don't wanna get somewhere in life. You don't wanna get to the end of your life and say, you know what, I successfully accomplished my agenda and I did what my limited human ability allowed me to do. You wanna get to the end of your life and say, I was successfully part of God's agenda and I got to watch God do what only God could do. When I was 25, I surrendered to go into the full-time ministry and I had been really fighting against God leading me to go into ministry up until that point. And the reason wasn't because I was jaded. I had a lot of friends who were pastors, kids that were very jaded, would never have gone into ministry just because they felt like it wasn't real. For me, and I've said this before, but it's really true, my dad was at home who he was at church, so I saw the best of the best as far as ministry was concerned. But I also saw that ministry was difficult. And I didn't, I didn't really wanna embrace that level of difficulty. I thought there were a lot of other things I could do that wouldn't be as difficult as that. And so out of college, my wife and I got married. I decided I wanted to be a car mechanic. I went to a very expensive mechanic school, got out of that, became a mechanic, then went into automotive service management. And uh, it was at that time in my life, at 25, I was you know, successful, I guess you would say, in automotive service management. I really felt that God had finally he had finally convinced me it was time for me to leave my job and go into full-time ministry. At the time, we had these invitations at the end of the service and you'd go down and tell the pastor something. We, we lived in Oklahoma City at the time. We went to the First Baptist Church of Edmond. I walked down the aisle and told my pastor that I wanted to surrender to full-time ministry and he said, great. And then we kind of looked at each other like, what now? Um, because I didn't have any of the things that you need to do ministry the normal way. I didn't have a seminary degree. I didn't have a degree. I had two years of undergraduate work. That was it. I didn't have anything else other than that. I had no prospects. I, I didn't know how I was going to enter into the ministry. It was literally starting from square one, nothing, right? I told my dad I had surrendered to full-time ministry. And now whenever dad tells this story, he says that, you know, he's like, now I realized I could have placed Jonathan at New Spring or I could have picked up the phone. I could have called any one of a dozen pastors who would have been thrilled to have Jonathan on his staff, but I didn't do that because I wanted God to direct Jonathan. And it, you know, at this stage of my life, I can be appreciative of that. If I had known that back then, I would have not been happy. I would have been like, make the call, you know? Like, because uh, I just had no path. I had no, I had no way of getting there. And so the pastor said, well, listen, I know you, at the time I thought I was gonna be in worship ministry. He's like, we have this, this praise team specialist coming in to do a clinic at the church. Why don't you come and talk to him and see if he has any advice for you? So we, we went to the clinic, participated in it, and I talked to this guy and he said, oh, I, I think I could help you. He said, I lead the music division of a Christian college in, in Alabama. And he's like, you know, I think you have potential. Here's what let's do. Why don't you come visit us at the college and we'll find a way to make this work for you. And I said, well, now I need you to know I have a ton of student debt 
from when I was becoming a mechanic and I, I don't wanna take on any more debt. He's like, I think we can make that work. He's like, I got tons of scholarships at my, uh, you know, at my disposal. I think with scholarship money, we can, we can just make this work for you, but you need to come out to Alabama and check it out first. And so uh, I sold some items that were important to me just to be able to afford the plane ticket to go out to Alabama with my wife. And we, we went and we sat down across from this guy only to have him tell us, you know, I, I was wrong. I thought I had the scholarship funds for you, but I really don't. Um, but we still think you should come and finish your degree here. Now, what you should know, a little backstory. Wendy and I had really felt led, Wendy especially, really felt led that God had called her to be a stay-at-home mom for that season for our youngest, or for our oldest, who at the time was our only daughter. Um, and that's not the only way of doing it, but we just really felt like God had led us at that season that that's what it needed to be. And Wendy and I were in agreement on that. We really felt like that was what we wanted to do. And uh, so when we sat across from this man, he said, you know, this is really simple. What you need to do is put your daughter in daycare and your wife could go to work. You know, she's an educator. She can go back to teaching and, um, you know, you'll be able to make it work financially. You know, you borrow a little bit and, and you'll be fine. And we said, well, that's really not what we've agreed with God on about this season of our life. Like, that's not what we believe is the right thing to do. And he pointed his finger at my wife, waved his finger at my wife and said, if you don't do this, he will never get his degree, he will never work in ministry, and he won't fulfill his purpose, and it will be on you. And I saw tears running down my wife's face because she would never want anything less than God's best for me, but she was up against, between a rock and a hard place. And we walked out of that office, and I remember we went to a little common area where there were tables and ping pong tables and stuff, and we sat there, my brother-in-law was on that trip, the three of us sat at the table, and I remember telling Wendy, you know, I just don't think there's only one way for this to happen. I think there's gotta be more than one way to do this. And I think going against what we believe is the right thing to do is not the right way to do this. And we went home, we still had no answers. We got a call from my pastor and he said, hey, know you wanna work in worship. We have this, wor this music assistant job that's come up. It's part-time, has no benefits, but are you interested? And I said, yes, I'll take it. I don't know why I said that. But I said, I'll take it. Um, remember how I said at a point you'd say, if, you, if I need to skip and cartwheel around these walls, I will. That's kind of where I was at. But I said, look, I, I need you to give me a little bit of time so I can find another part-time job with benefits so that I have you know, health coverage for my family and all that. And they said, okay, we can give you some time. So I started looking for another part-time job. And in Oklahoma City, the only thing I could find that was part-time with benefits was UPS. So I, I applied for the job. It was a, a truck loading job. And they load trucks in the middle of the night, and so they had this sort of application slash orientation at midnight um, one night. So I go to this huge facility in Oklahoma City, middle of the night, to learn about the idea of potentially being a truck loader for UPS. And I go there, and I sit in a room with 20 other guys, and all of these guys look like bodybuilders to me. I mean, they just have these massive bulging muscles. And I know that I look very athletic to you, but I'm really not. I'm really not. <laughs> I'm not nearly as built as I think I look in this room. And I, um, so I'm thinking to myself, you know, what am I doing here? And yet there was a part of me that knew what I was doing there. You know what I'm talking about? You ever get to a situation where your, your normal judgment says, what am I doing here? But there was a spirit of God that says, you know what you're doing here. And they took us for a tour of the building. And, and before they took us on the tour, they said, now there's a person at the back of the tour that will help you leave if you decide you're not interested in this. You don't have to take the whole tour if you decide you're not interested in this. And we go and we watch these guys load these trucks and I'm telling you, these guys could win competitions. 
They're huge. And by the time we make it back to the little classroom to fill out the applications, four of us, four or five of us were left of the 20 that started. And the guy's bringing around the application sheets and he gets to me and he looks at me like, you sure? <laughs> and I start to fill out the sheet and I, I don't know if you can put yourself in my place in that moment, but I did have that moment that's like, this is surreal. I had a regular day job that was very normal. Now I'm getting ready to go work at a church. I've never, I've never worked at a church before. I'm sitting, it's one o'clock in the morning. I'm sitting at UPS filling out an application to load trucks. I'm gonna kill myself loading trucks. I'm gonna get here the first day and throw up and pass out on the same day in front of everybody else. It's gonna be on YouTube the next day, you know? There is a point though at which you will do anything to follow God because you understand what it is like not to. So I filled out the application. Now I know this is gonna just blow your mind, but they never got back with me. <laughs> never heard back from UPS. I think it was a clerical error, really. Why I never heard back from them, but. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from my pastor. He says, Jonathan, I got a question for you. Those two years of undergrad work that you did, you were a broadcasting major, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we just got a major donation, millions of dollars donated to the church anonymously. He said, and there's a certain designation for the funds, different parts of the funds. And he said, one of the designations is for a television ministry. Now, we don't have cameras and we don't have a control room. We don't have any of this stuff. So we have to start from scratch. So we're wondering, if we were to take the job we already offered you and combine it with a job being television director, you come in and you figure out all the cameras and all the stuff that we need and start the, start the television ministry up, and you would have a full-time job with benefits, would you be open to that? Would I be open to that? <laughs> I was just in UPS filling out an application to load trucks. Yeah, I'm open to it. That was 2007. That guy wagged his finger at my wife and said, if you don't do this, are you, are you following me? If you don't do this, he will never finish his degree, he will never serve in ministry, and he will never fulfill his purpose. I'm here to tell you that I did finish my degree. I finished my bachelor's degree, then I went back and finished my master's degree, then I went back and finished my PhD. And I'm serving the greatest church in the United States of America, and I think I am fulfilling my purpose. And I don't say that to thumb my nose at that man. I think he was trying to help. What I'm telling you is that God doesn't have to play by their rules. God, ha God doesn't have to do it the normal way. You don't have to climb over it. You don't have to tunnel under it. You don't have to punch a wall through it. You don't have to starve him out. You don't have to trick him out. If God wants the walls to fall, the walls will fall. At his time, if you do it his way. That's the lesson of the story. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. You give us instructions and we are prepared to follow you even when the instructions don't make sense, even when it doesn't fit with our ideas, we're prepared to follow you. Heads are still bowed, bowed eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you say, Jonathan, I want what you're talking about. I want a God to follow who will help the walls fall in my life. Here's the good news. That God has been reaching out to you since day one of your life. He wants a relationship with you. And through his son, Jesus Christ, he has done everything that is necessary to have a relationship with you. And all that stands left is for you to say yes. It's the only thing he can't do for you, actually. It wouldn't be a relationship if he said yes for you. 
It's the only thing that's left. And if you're ready to do that right now, you can do that right now. I'm gonna say the words to a simple prayer. You don't have to say this out loud. You can just follow along silently in your heart. And if you do, it'll be settled once and for all. Here we go, dear Jesus. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and rose again for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. You are now my boss. I will do what you say in Jesus' name. Amen. If Look this way, would you just for a moment, if you just prayed that prayer, would you let us help you get started in your journey with God? If you just text prayed to 97,000, we will get you started with everything that you need to begin your journey with God. Thanks so much for being here with us this week. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time newspring.org.